Well, if you're just joining us, we have been studying the Gospel of Matthew as a congregation for several months now. And uh, Matthew is, again, the first book in the New Testament. It's uh, one of the four books you find at the beginning of the New Testament that helps tell the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and how God is establishing his kingdom on earth through his eternal son, Jesus. By God's providence, our passage this morning uh, connects so beautifully with what we've just been privileged to hear, God's incredible grace for sinners, for, for broken people, not just, by the way, those who are in or have come through the Teen Challenge program, every single one of us here. And so if you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. If you're using the the Bible in the pew in front of you, you can find that on page 963. Matthew 9, verses 9 through 13. Please stand with me as we read scripture together. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is God's word. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. If you've ever played uh, one of those word association games, um, so something like where I say Boston and you say whatever comes to your mind when you hear that word, maybe it's Red Sox or Dunkin' Donuts or or whatever, or or I say five guys, and you say manna from heaven, or (laughs) maybe gut balm, you know, which that one can go either way. Um, You know, a game like that can actually tell you a lot about what people think of something. And so if you were to play that game with your friends, your family, your co-workers here in New England, and you say Christianity you might hear somebody say Jesus or the Bible or church, but you're just as likely to hear words like judgmental or self-righteous or hypocritical or rules. And of course, the reason for this is, is based at least in part on different people's experience interacting with those who bear the name Christian. People do a lot of different things in the name of Christianity. Some of them are positive and some of them are negative. Some of them accurately reflect the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done. And some of them don't accurately reflect that truth. And so it's interesting when we come to a passage like Matthew 9 and to see who Jesus actually is and what he's actually like, how that seems to clash so strongly against some of the very common perceptions of Christianity, meaning you know, a self-righteous, judgmental, rules-based version of religion. It's not what we see here when we look at Jesus. 
Now, Matthew's gospel has been full of scandals so far, uh, recently especially. Jesus' scandalous demand that, that his followers drop everything and actually follow him. Uh, the scandalous claim that we saw last week that Jesus has authority on earth to forgive sin, something only God can do. Our passage uh, this morning gives us another scandal. Here is a king who sits down and has lunch with sinners, with the unmentionables of society. You know, as Jesus is establishing his, you know, God's kingdom on earth, you know, we, we've seen his ministry so far through this gospel. He's been proclaiming the news of the gospel. He, he's been preaching. He's been healing. Uh, he's been doing signs and wonders. All of these pointing to the fact that, that God's kingdom is standing right in front of them. But another thing he's been doing as he establishes that kingdom, he's been calling a group of followers to his side. A group of men who are going to be with him and who are through whom he is going to then continue to advance his kingdom after he ascends to the Father. We call those the twelve disciples or twelve apostles. And our story begins this morning with Jesus calling one of those twelve disciples, a man named Matthew, who's credited for writing the gospel that we've been studying. But Matthew is not known at this point for being a, a, an author or a biographer. Uh, Jesus doesn't come to him and say, you know, I read that, that expose you did on Herod's kitchen staff the other day, and I was just wondering, you know, if you could come kind of like an embedded journalist with our group and, and document this. He doesn't, that's not his reputation. The only thing Matthew's known for at this point is what he tells us about himself. He's a tax collector, which is not a compliment in that day. Not that it has even become much of a compliment today, but still, you know, it was even worse then. You know, Jewish tax collectors like Matthew, or who's also known as Levi um, in the other Gospels, they were viewed with incredible suspicion by their fellow Jews, partly because they were seen to be in league with Rome, the foreign government who is oppressing Israel, and partly because they were known for collecting a little extra for themselves, lining their pockets as they collected the taxes for Caesar. So think IRS agent working for Canada, you know, taking your money for the queen and so that he himself could live like a king. You know, that's the kind of stuff that America went to war over in the Revolution. That's Matthew. These were the kinds of people the, the, that religious folk in Jesus' day avoided. You did not hang out with them. Jesus is even aware of their negative reputation. As he says back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.46, If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? I mean, if I can give you an example of how unimpressed I am if you just love those who, who love you in return, look at the tax collectors. Um, yet this is who he calls to be his follower. Not the elite, not those who have their lives put together, not the powerful. He calls a sinner, a tax collector like Matthew, scum of the earth, to be in his inner circle. And not only does Jesus call such shady characters to his inner circle, in the next scene, Matthew throws a party and Jesus is the guest of honor. He invites all his suspicious and unseemly friends. In verse 10 we read, While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, 
many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. It's a pretty scandalous picture in some ways if you think about it. Or at least it is if you're part of the religion police. And that's who shows up on the scene in verse 11. The Pharisees, who were one of the groups of religious leaders in Jesus' day, uh, who, who not only tried to keep the law themselves, but then who, who added extra uh, rules and rituals to it and then expected everyone else to keep those rules and rituals on top of what the law had said. So, so they catch wind of this party. Um, maybe they're even invited. We don't know how or why they ended up there, but they show up. And as they watch Jesus with their furrowed brow, you know, kind of checking him out, you know, they, they decide we, we, need to, we need to give him a little advice here. Let's go talk to his disciples and help him understand why this is not a good idea. And so they say in, in verse 11, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? This Jesus, he, he claims to be a religious leader. He claims to be the long-awaited king, Israel's Messiah. If that were so, surely he would know better than to hang out with this group. You know, they're not worthy. They're not the religious kind. They're not holy enough. They don't keep the rules. They're a bad influence. If you spend too much time with them, you know, you're going to start becoming like them. What will people say anyway if they were to see this little, this little party happening? I mean, those people made their bed. They chose their path. They can sleep in it. They can follow it off the cliff. Any self-respecting religious person wouldn't be caught dead in this place. That's the attitude. And you look at Jesus' response in verse 12. On hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus' response to the Pharisees demonstrates that their whole religious project is basically an exercise in missing the point. First, they miss the point of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. He has not come as the long-awaited king of Israel to, to take down Israel's opposition by force and then to validate the religious leaders and, and their agenda, which is kind of what they were looking for and hoping for. He's not come for those who think that by themselves they've got it all together. In other words, he's not come for the healthy. He's come for the sick. Again, as Matthew 1, 21 put it right at the beginning of this gospel, he came to save his people from their sins. Second, Jesus suggests that the Pharisees have missed the point about their very own religion. Not only did they miss the point of the Messiah, they missed the point of the religion they're supposed to be teachers of. When he says in verse 13, go and learn what this means, and then he quotes to them their own scripture from Hosea 6, verse 6, essentially he's saying, you need to go back to school. You're supposed to be teaching, and you don't even get the whole point of your own religion. It's quite a rebuke. And Hosea 6 itself is quite a rebuke. If you go back and read that book in the Old Testament, uh, in that chapter. It's a rebuke against ancient Israel and Judah. So in Hosea 6, verse 4, it says, God says to his, his people, What can I do with you, Ephraim? 
What can I do with you, Judah? Your, your love is like a morning mist, like an early dew that disappears. Israel's love was so sh- shallow and short-lived, it's just gone. Therefore, God brought them under the judgment of his covenant. Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. My judgments flashed like lightning upon you. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Ancient Israel had thought that as long as they kept up the offering the sacrifices and the religious uh, worship system, the burnt offerings and such, keeping up the rules, as long as they did that, God would somehow overlook their violence and their injustice and their idolatry, how they were worshiping other gods of foreign nations right alongside their own God. And, and he'll, he'll overlook that as long as we can keep doing these things. And God, God brings them under judgment because they miss the point. So too, Jesus, in comparing the Pharisees to those ancient Israelites, says... They have missed the point of God's law, of the, of the very foundation of their own religion. And consequently, they stand under the same judgment as ancient Israel did in Hosea's day. God's law was designed to fuel holiness, compassion, justice, and love for both God and neighbor. That's what Jesus says it was all about. You go back and you read it, that's what it's all about. And ultimately, to, to show us, to point our way to a Savior when we come to the end of ourselves and realize we can't keep the whole thing by ourselves. We need a Savior. The Pharisees had turned it into a list of rules for measuring their own self-worth and piety, and therefore for judging others who did not measure up in the same way that they did. And underneath it all, the Pharisees missed the point of God. They missed the point of God. They missed the point of the Messiah. They missed the point of their their own law. They missed the point of God. The God who makes himself known in the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, the God who makes himself known to us in Jesus is a God of grace. He's a God of grace. And, And when we use that word grace, amazing grace, as we just heard sung, we're talking about an unearned favor. We're talking about being given something absolutely incredibly wonderful, even though we deserve something utterly devastating and terrible. That's grace. And that's the kind of God God is. But the Pharisees' religious project had had mutated ancient Israel's faith, and they created instead a God of performance, who sits anxiously in heaven, tapping his foot at us, waiting for us to get our act together and withholding any benefit or love until we can clean ourselves up, make it up to him, and come back to God. Which in the end means that we're the ones who get the credit instead of him. Anyway. Your standing before this God of performance is based on your performance. What you can do. How well you keep the rules. Which means that obedience is not motivated by grace as it was in the Old Testament, as it is in the New Testament. Instead, it's motivated by guilt. I've blown it so bad, and now it's up to me to put it right. It's, it's not empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's empowered by the flesh. If it's going to be, it's up to me, and I have to, to summon my strength and pull myself together. The result is that those who can keep up the show, at least for a little bit, get to kind of puff their chests out and look down their noses at those who, who can't. 
That's, and, and, and not only look down on those who can't, but, but then to look with suspicion on any who would hang out with those who can't, like Jesus. Why would you be caught dead with those people? They don't keep up the show. The Pharisees saw themselves as the righteous, as the healthy, as people who did not need a Savior like Jesus. Jesus says to them, in judgment, I didn't come for you. I came for those who know they need a Savior. I came not to call the righteous. You could put quotes around that. I came to call sinners. The scariest part of his indictment against the Pharisees, though, is how well it describes much of what Jesus' followers look and feel like today at times. It's very easy to begin to see ourselves as the healthy, as the righteous, those who have it together, who have God on our side, whom God is lucky to have on his side. And and, and so then we perpetuate this stereotype of of being known as the judgmental, the self-righteous, those who can keep up the show. When we measure people based on how well they keep the rules externally, or when we measure newcomers based on how easily they pick up on the unwritten rules of how we do things here, we have become a we become performance based in our relationships, not grace based. We're more interested in what you think of me as a model rule keeper than we are in loving people. When we become more interested in what my Christian friends will say if they see me with this person than whether this person will spend eternity in the joy of God's presence or in the terror of hell. Or when we serve those willingly whose lives look intact, but ignore and avoid those whose lives are a little bit messier from the street, look look a little bit more time-consuming, this is going to cost more of me. We've become man-centered in our faith instead of God-centered. It's, again, it's, all, it's not about God's plan or his grace. It's about what I get out of it and what others will think of me in the process. When we begin to categorize the world into us versus them, where us refers to those, again, who have it together, rather than recognizing that we are all sinners in desperate need of God's grace, that we've all fallen miserably short of God's standard, and that all we have to offer one another is the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus. That's it. Then once again, if we lose sight of that, we've created a religious system that that is measured by performance, that is man-centered in its goal, that's fueled by guilt, and that has nothing to do with the gospel of God's grace. Now, the solution to that kind of self-righteous morality is not going to the other extreme of a self-indulgent immorality. That's a mistake some will often make. They rightly stand in judgment on those who say one thing and do another, but then wrongly go to the the other opposite. And the reality is that both self-righteous morality and self-indulgent immorality, both of them are equally mistaken, equally dangerous, and equally offensive to God. As Tim Keller has put it, the gospel is neither religion nor irreligion. 
It's something else altogether. Religion makes law and moral obedience a means of salvation, while irreligion makes the individual a law to him or herself. The gospel, however, is that Jesus takes the law of God so seriously that he paid the penalty of disobedience so that we can be saved by sheer grace. That's the gospel. The gospel tells us that sin really is sinful, but that grace really is sufficient. Again, all humanity, we're told in Scripture, and our own hearts bear witness to it, all humanity is fallen in sin. And our sinfulness is not measured you know, based on uh, how I line up with that guy or, or based on what's socially acceptable and what isn't. It's measured against God's holiness as he reveals it in his word. And so that means that, that whereas society or, or religion might categorize some sins as worse than others, all of it falls short of God's standard. There is no us versus them in Christianity. There's just us. Broken, weak, pitiful, blind, poor, naked sinners. Sinners who need a God bigger than us. Who can rescue us. Left to ourselves, we deserve God's judgment. But praise be to Jesus, he's not left us to ourselves, has he? He sent his son, our king, our savior, the, 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 the one whom this whole book is ultimately about, who came to call sinners in mercy. And in Jesus, God's grace is sufficient to redeem us from every sin. And I mean every sin. There is nothing that could be exposed in your life or, or, in, or hidden in your heart. There's nothing that could be exposed that hasn't already been covered by the blood of Jesus. You need to know that. You need to know that. In Jesus, God did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He, he gives us, through faith in him, he gives us the credit for his righteous life. That's incredible. You know, I, my default is I want all of the credit and none of the blame. And just ask my wife. That's my modus operandi. You know, something goes wrong, I did that. Or excuse me, something goes right, I, I, I want the credit. But if I've made a mistake, I'm like, well, why did you do that? You know, we want all the credit, none of the blame. Jesus gives us the credit and takes all of the blame. He lived the life we were supposed to live but couldn't. He died the death we deserve to die so that we don't have to. That is grace. God gives us something wonderful forgiveness, adoption into his family, eternal life in his kingdom, even though we deserve something utterly terrible, judgment away from his presence. This is the grace of God that says to sinners, come as you are. This is the grace of God that does not leave sinners as they come, but changes their hearts and their lives to love God more and to love sin less and to make us look more and more like him. King Jesus calls sinners mercifully to himself, and that is what we are. That is what we are. And unless we see that sin for what it is, we will never recognize the incredible depth of God's grace, the incredible 
unsearchable extent of his love. This weekend I spent um, part of it up at a, at a conference on the North Shore uh, listening to Paul Tripp teach. And one of the things that he said, uh, one of the many things that stood out, only sinners celebrate grace. Only sinners are capable of celebrating grace. If you don't know how bad you are, you don't know how incredible God's love and mercy is. And unless we see it for what it is, we won't celebrate it. Unless we see it for what it is, we will continue to look down on those you know, who, who don't play by the rules. We'll, we'll look with suspicion on those who spend time with them rather than looking with mercy and compassion and a desire that what Christ has done in my life, he would do in their lives as well. Because when we see our sin for what it is, it's no longer about convincing people that, I, that I've got it together. It's no longer about wearing a mask, keeping up appearances. It's no longer about fighting for my own agenda, my own plans, my dreams. It's about God and his glory. It's about Jesus and his mission. It's about loving others the way that God has loved us. May God deliver us from perpetuating the stereotype of a self-righteous, rules-based, judgmental religion. May we individually and as a congregation follow the pattern of our merciful Savior who came not to call the righteous but sinners. For that is what we are. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that no matter how hard we try and no matter how good we are at at masking the truth of who we are before one another, that, that there's nothing that can hide your eyes from seeing the true state of our hearts. And Lord, that's terrifying on one hand because you are a holy God and you made us and you own us and you rule us and you have the right to judge us. And yet, if we have Jesus, how liberating is it to know that not only can I not hide my sin, I don't have to. I can be honest about how broken my heart is, the selfish thoughts that flood it, uh, the lustful thoughts, the, the, the arrogance, the pride, the anger, the bitterness, whatever it is that fills our hearts and that, that draws us away from you, Lord, we can be honest before you and before one another because in Jesus we have a sufficient Savior. God, may you open hearts, not just hearts that don't know you yet. We pray, I pray, Jesus, that, that for those who, who are here this morning and they're just, you know, they don't know, maybe they don't know why they're here. Maybe they're here exploring this whole thing called Christianity or, or trying to figure out who this Jesus is. God, would your spirit work in hearts to see you for who you are, to see our sin for what it is and your grace for what it is, and and would you give faith, God? But for for those of us who have known you for a while and, and, and who long to walk with you, would you not let us trick ourselves into thinking we've outgrown your grace? That, yeah, that was nice for coming to know you, but I, I've got it from here. God, would you not let us 
stay there? Would you keep us ever dependent on you? And would that not only well up in incredible thanksgiving for your mercy, would it well up in compassion for others? Lord, would you do that in our hearts, in this congregation? Would you do that among the Teen Challenge men that you have rescued and brought and and who stand this morning as a trophy of your grace? Would you not let them outgrow their need for your grace in their hearts, but keep them dependent on you? We pray for that ministry, God, that you would flourish it, that you would, that you would help connect even maybe people here today who need to get involved and, and get in touch with that ministry. God, would you do it and would you use it for your glory? Lord, we thank you for the high school students and sponsors who returned safely last night from uh, a week in New York City of opening uh, your word uh, and, and getting to know um, uh, immigrants and, and helping rebuild uh, homes destroyed with Sandy and uh, all the different activities and conversations and relationships you brought into place. We, we thank you for what you've done this week and we pray that, that you would continue to that it would continue to bear fruit for your kingdom, in the, not only in New York City, but also in the hearts and lives of those who went and served, Lord. We pray for some of them who leave this week for college already. Uh, Lord, thank you for Ashley Mitchell and for Aaron Moody and Eric Campos as they head off to their freshman year. Lord, would you be with them and with all of our college uh, students that are starting up. Lord, would you keep them close to your word? Would you give them fellowship with other Christians? Would you give them uh, uh, an ongoing sense of your presence and your love and, and, and remind them daily that they cannot outrun your grace? Would you keep them close to you? Would you use them to make your name known? We pray that you would work in their heart and bring them satisfaction and joy in Jesus. Lord, we pray for our missionaries. We thank you for Bethany and her work in Asia with Kites Global and, and the incredible work they're doing with, with uh, young children. And uh, Lord, would you, would you continue to flourish that, Lord? Would you bring these young children to know you? Would you provide for the needs uh, of the children and those serving them? Would your name be made high in Asia, Lord? Lord, we pray for those among us who are in need. Lord, we lift them each week, and you know who they are. Uh, those who have borne an extended battle with cancer, for Steve Gerber and for Rick Brown, for Mary Boy, for Bob French, those who are recovering from recent surgeries, Lord, for Jackie Griffith and Karen Thompson, for Emmy Harrison. And Lord, we pray, again, your mercy and healing on each of their lives. We pray the comfort and presence of your spirit. Lord, keep them near your cross. Remind them of your love. Remind them of the power of your resurrection. We thank you that you are with us in our need. Lord, we give all of these requests to you. And the way we can do it isn't because we've pulled ourselves together and we've got something to offer. Lord, we come as beggars, clothed in the righteous robes of your Son. And we thank you that you accept us because of him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.